Hi, everybody. Welcome to In the Green Room, uh, Standby for Places interview podcast that discusses exciting projects that are coming up with exciting people involved with said exciting projects. Today, we are joined by Lauren T. Mack. Hi, Lauren. Hi. So good to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's, it's also a pleasure. It's like backstage, but there's no stage. It's the Standby for Places Green Room. Welcome to In the Green Room. Welcome to In the Green Room. Uh, today, we are discussing Cyrano de Bergerac with Lauren T. Mack, who is involved in a multitude of ways with the project. Tell us what you do. Uh, so um, in Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, I played Cyrano. I also um, adapted the play and um, and retranslated portions of it. What what um, inspired you to? Were, were you the one who brought Cyrano to Standby for Places? Yes, but the prompt was I I will say like. Frida, um, so I, I played a very small role in Much Ado, mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, we recorded that in December, um, and Frida messaged me, um, I want to say it was like a, a month or two before Pride and was like, hey, I, we would love for you to, uh, more than that, I'm giving, I'm, I'm making Frida sound like she, like she contacted me last hey, week. Uh... But, uh, but she contacted me, she reached out and was like, what would you like to do? We would love for you to be involved and do some programming for Standby for Places, but we, we don't know what that will be yet. Right. Um, and I was like, cool, I don't either. And I don't know that now is the time for me to like write my first play and put it out there. Um, so, uh, so I was thinking about things that were in the public domain um, that, uh, were, were plays that I loved. And I've always, always loved Cyrano de Bergerac. I feel like it's it's maybe one of my favorite plays. Um, and uh, I've, I've always had a very unhealthy obsession with it. Um, and I've always connected deeply with Cyrano. And um, in reflection, as I was rereading the play, realizing um, that Cyrano uh, navigates a lot of things that queer people navigate. Mm. Um, uh, a lot of wanting to be perceived um, and showing off and having a lot of style, a lot of panache, but also please do not perceive me. Please don't notice my nose. If you say anything about my nose, I'll murder you. Um, uh, a lot of uh, the community is so strong. Um, and something that we also were reflecting on in um, as we were rehearsing the play was um, that everybody loves Cyrano. Um, like, everybody in the play deeply loves Cyrano, has deep loyalty to Cyrano. Ever, like there's a moment that we, we had to cut, but it's um, with this like waiting girl who's like flirting with him. And, um, and it's used as evidence that like, look, you are lovable. Like that girl just flirted with you. And, um, and Cyrano just can't accept it. Um, there's a lot of like self-hatred and a lot of um, deep fear. Um, it's the fear of um, not necessarily things going wrong, but things going right. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that just all felt very gay to me. <laughs> um, it feels very gay. I mean, besides like all the high style and, you know, um, swords and, and plumes and all of that, um, it just, it felt, um, and it also is a role that um, I wouldn't typically get a crack at. Um, 
you know, unless you're doing like a concept Cyrano, you know, like there would never be a Cyrano in which it would be like, oh, of course, this person is Cyrano. But right. also I will say that my deep love of Cyrano pre-pandemic, like throughout my life, um, was also a little bit of me navigating my own uh, non-binariness and my own transness and not knowing how to articulate that. Um, and always being mad that like, I didn't get any of the good fight scenes um, and that I was always wench number five in the bar, you know, um, you know, and my main fight move was like whacking someone over the head with a tray table and, or a tray, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, that while like, you know, the boys, the cis boys got to run off and play with the pointy objects. Um, so, you know, I, it was something I never thought I would have the, a crack at. And, um, and now as the world is sort of shifting and having more conversations about gender, this suddenly feels like something that um, I might not even have to generate for myself. You know, um, these types of roles might be more open uh, to trans and non-binary folk in the future, which is cool because classical theater could use that. Is, is your version of Cyrano or, or your collaborative version of Cyrano set in any particular time? Is, is there a concept with a capital C? Nah, 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 nah I'm just Cyrano. Um, and uh, we have basically um, what we have going on is um, uh, six, six actors, um, including myself. So we've got Cyrano, Christiane and, um, and Roxanne. And then we have three actors playing all the rest of the roles, um, regardless of gender, regardless of how it sounds, especially that's sort of the freeing thing about an audio play is that, you know, um, beyond like, oh, well, I don't have to worry about like gender as long as I can make the sounds, who cares? But also like there's no costume changes. There's no logistical obstacles to someone playing multiple roles. So we just, um, so the, the, yeah, but basically it's still it's still in the 1600s because I do still feel like it's timeless. Um, and I think that there is, you know, even if Cyrano isn't explicitly queer, like there's no moment where I gender Cyrano differently than he, him. Um, because I do think that there, you don't have to be queer to come out of the closet. You don't have to be queer to be closeted. Um, mm -hmm. There are many ways in which you can hide your true self from the world or feel like there's not space for you to be vulnerable um, uh, or open. So I feel like, I feel like, you know, to, you know, push a, um, to like explicitly make Cyrano trans um, sort of gilds the lily. Um, I think, I think the role really, and the language really speaks for itself. Speaking of it being an audio production and not a visual one, um, it, it's so exciting that that can open up so many doors for creativity and telling the story and it can eliminate certain barriers that we kind of have created uh, in terms of how things are perceived. Um, but considering that Cyrano has, in, in several tellings of it, it has what could be called a visual gag. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking specifically of Roxanne starring Steve Martin or the um, Gerard Depardieu version, things like that. Uh, it, it's explicitly referenced in the text, I assume. I, I, actually, I, I know that it is because I because I looked at the script. Um, but so the nose is explicitly referenced in the text. But was there anything that you found challenging or that you uh, saw as an opportunity to be creative in terms of 
telling the visual aspects of the story in an audio way? Yeah, um, yes. Uh, the sword fights, uh, honestly, were a big part. Um, luckily, I like it was sort of a gamble going in, and we'll see if the gamble pays off. Um, but it was sort of a, a gamble I made going in because a lot of the like all the sword fights, all of the violence in the show is language driven. Cyrano is speaking poetry over a lot of the fights and the, the language is as much um, like the French word repartee, right? Which we talk about in terms of like back and forth with language mm -hmm. also refers to back and forth with swords. Um, so there's, there's a, um, there's an element there where, that I'm hoping comes across in um, the fighting that is also very much a battle of the wits um, and that there is no difference between the two. Um, but I will say also, um, something that's interesting about Cyrano is that it was written in the uh, late 1800s and it's set in the 1600s. So it's an era that seems foreign to us in the 2020s, looking back on another era that is even further away. And, um, and that style at the time was melodrama. I mean, it was just at the beginning of melodrama. So people really narrate what they're doing, how they're feeling. It's very, so there was almost actually too much description where I was like, this is going to be a three hour play. Um, like I cut, I, the, the, I cut, uh, I want to say like over 50% of the script. Um, wow. I cut a lot of it um, because so much of it is asides that are right. also, I think, really good for an era in which you would be at the theater talking, looking at other people, maybe halfway paying attention to what's going on. So you need the aside to be like, wait, what's going on? Um, you know, much in the, it's, we've kind of come full circle now with like the way that we watch streamed content, we're texting or playing games the whole time. And then right. we're like, what's going on? And then, Do I need to rewind? So, you know, I think there's, um, there was almost too much. Um, sorry, Edmund Rustin, uh, there was almost too much. Um, and so I think a bigger challenge was not necessarily like, oh, what's not being visually communicated here? Um, the biggest challenge was like, how can I cut this elegantly um, and in a way that gets the point across? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes what that wound up meaning was retranslating um, uh, like whole sections. Um, so that wound up being a whole nother project. And how did you how did you go about retranslating? How did you approach that? Uh, well, um, I uh, speak French, um, so that, that helps. Um, it helps, but it's a weird it's a weird situation because the French is obviously like if you listen to people speaking English in the eighteen hundreds, that's going to be a little bit different than now. Um, so, so there was a challenge there, but the um, the original version um, in French is also in the public domain. So I put um, uh, the um, I put a, a, a public domain translation next to the uh, original French mm -hmm. and I went back and forth going like, is that really what that means? Or is that somebody, is that the translator making commentary and, you know, trying to do something? Sure. An interpretation. Yeah. That, that exactly. is almost always the way with, with text that we can't speak to. The well, so much of Cyrano is um, in, um, uh, rhyme diverse and that is not 
easy to translate, <laughs> um, especially because like a lot of the verse, um, it's not always used in Cyrano, but a lot of the verses Alexandrine verse hmm. is a different set of beats than um, what most English speakers would be used to, which is iambic pentameter used in Shakespeare. And because iambic pentameter fits the rhythm of English a mm -hmm. lot better, Alexandrine, like if you've ever like checked out like a weird translation of some Moliere, like they'll try and make the Alexandrine work on the English. And it's, it's, it's like trying to listen to two songs at the same time. Um, so how, did that, how did that manifest when you were um, retranslating and adapting? Did, did you try to keep it fitting that mold or did, did you break it apart? I do think that the artist is dead and so are their intentions. Um, I think that once somebody puts art out into the world, the way you view it is adding to the art, you become um, a collaborator in that. And so um, for me, uh, I love rules. I love right angles. I love for things to make sense. And um, I wanted to actively push against that in, in this. So there are places where I did put it in verse and then when I spoke it, I didn't observe the line endings at all. Um, you know, there are places where uh, I specifically chose to not put it in verse, but maybe got a little bit more poetical with the language mm -hmm. um, to give this the energy of it. This is my first time translating something. Um, and so what I was discovering is there isn't, it's not just like, obviously it's not just the literal translation of like, this word means this word. But it's also about like, is the spirit of the thing coming across? Because there are things that uh, like references in French that like are turns of phrase that just don't make sense in English um, or just aren't said in English. Um, puns. Um, there's a whole section where, uh, you know, Cyrano is trying to tell a story and Christian is baiting him, saying things like, who knows, leaning into the nose thing. The French jokes were not reading. I had to completely make up new puns in there um, because it just wouldn't translate with the sounds of the words. The Cyrano stands are going to be after you on Twitter for making your up your own puns. Honestly, I can't wait to meet them. I'm <laughs> so excited. These are my people. You're right. Yeah, it starts out as like. Uh, I know. It's gonna start out and it. then it ends as a party. I'm gonna like wind up marrying one of them. I have a feeling. Um, oh my God, I ship it. That would be, <laughs> and then I'll write the play about it and then stand by for places, we'll do it. Incredible, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, would watch, would watch that movie. Um, so we touched upon this a little bit, but how, can, can you say more about how Cyrano de Bergerac is a, would you say it's a pride story? Would you say it's a pride relevant story? I would say, yes. Um, the, I know I said, you know, oh, I didn't play, you know, I didn't like switch his pronouns, but I still felt very much like I was playing a queer version of Cyrano. There were places in the script where I really tried to, um, the French are so much more um, uh, familiar with each other in some ways. Like um, we might say like, oh, my friend. Um, and they will say, oh, mon cher, my dear, right? Which can also be, oh my, that can be my dear friend. That can be my dear like lover. That can be uh -huh. 
a lot of things. And so there were many places where I really tried to throw in some like, oh, darling, not that, you know, like yeah. uh, things like that. But I also do feel like there is something I mean, like, and, and every queer person will know what I mean when I say this, when you're in a show and you have a crush on the lead and you know, the lead will never give you the time of day because they are straight, 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 straight. You know, the love that Cyrano has for Roxanne is so beautiful. And I, I obviously, I don't want to, you know, um, put you know, needless suffering on a pedestal, right? Or this sort of, this sort of, you know, um, you know, leaning into pain and sacrificing all of your own needs for somebody else. But I think there is something very like, oh, you wanna, Christian, you wanna put on a show? Like, you wanna like, you wanna put on a show together and like, I can pretend and it'll be really fun. Um, and then low key, like, you're like, please just see me, but oh my God, please don't see me. Because if that you being perceived, that wanting to be perceived, and also deeply not wanting to be perceived. Yes, the balcony scene with, um, you know, when um, Cyrano takes over for Christian um, in the dark, mm -hmm. and uh, Roxanne has this moment of like, "Oh my God, this is so incredible! I'll come down," and Cyrano's like, "Oh my God, please don't! Like, please, please don't! But stay there. This is." really nice mm -hmm. right here, you not knowing. I mean, especially for those of us who grew up on the internet, you know, um, yeah. and, and being able to um, create an identity and not have, um, and not have anybody know that you did it and just be someone else. And, but in a way able to express things that are, um, more honest than you might be able to be in your own skin. I mean, when I think about, you know, um, like I've been doing a lot of like taking stock over this last year because I started my transition recently and, uh -huh. um, congrats. Thank you. Um, and I, um, you know, you have experiences like binding for the first time or like having an experience with another person for the first time where then your whole life flashes before your eyes and you're like, that's why I cried when my mom took away my old spice deodorant at 14. Oh my God. Like all of a sudden, like all of these things like suddenly make sense. And, and, and looking back at like the ways in which I interacted with content and the ways in which I wrote my own stories that are very like, you know, it, you know, you would look back on it now and be like, oh, oh God, this is so cringe, but it's also just so earnest. And so, and I'm, I'm, please, everybody feel free to dig into my digital past. It's also embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but like it, 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 it truly, it allowed me to explore and say what I meant to say in a way that I never would have gotten to otherwise. And in a, in, a, in that way, the internet was the dark and I got to be Cyrano actually trying things on and learning how to speak words of love without the risk of being rejected when somebody actually sees what I actually look like. It, the internet has sort of allowed us to transcend our like physical meat sacks or like reshape them, you know, in the way that we would like to reshape them. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Instagram filters. I love them. Um, uh, but I also am like, this is so dangerous and so bad. Um, but I, I feel like there is something, um, there is a little bit of a self-hating queer in Cyrano of that, like, well, my nose is always going to be this way and there's no way anything could ever change and anyone could ever love me for this. And because of this, I am doomed. Mm. Like, it almost feels a little incel-y. Um, like, because of my face shape, I will never attract a mate. Um, like, the, which, you know, um, there's brilliant stuff on, um, like, counterpoints, for example, about incels and about how incel culture connects to trans culture, um, you know, uh, but like there's there's very much um, this deep self-rejection based on the form um, and based on what uh, whether or not Cyrano believes he's performing masculinity correctly. Right. You know, even though he's doing everything else right and everyone raves about what a renaissance man he is in every other way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's heralded in in so many ways, but no one talks shit. Even his enemies are like, uh, "Wow, we know we've heard about you before we met you." You know, like yeah. Um, but it's not enough. It's not enough, um, which feels gay to me. <laughs> <laughs> might not be gay. I might just be reaching here, but it feels gay. Well, and you know, going back to the fact that you kept the he/him pronouns for Cyrano, there are a million and one ways to be queer. There's a million and one ways to be male. There, yeah. um, there's there's a zillion and one ways to be a human person, and and well, we're all doing it. Yep. And well, yep. And I, I will say the only place I mass I changed pronouns was um, was uh, at the end mm-hmm. uh, when he's uh, fighting death, when he's seeing that personification of death, and he um, and I've just been so interested in pronoun cycling um, as I've. I am somebody who cycles pronouns, right? I use both they and she interchangeably. If somebody wants to throw a he in there, also great. Who cares? Um, gender is a lie. Um, but I, I, um, I was like, what? What if we just decided that that um, death is not going to have a gender, um, especially because so like French is completely gendered, um, yeah. and. Uh, um, and uh, death is is female um, in French, um, la mort. And so, which is also fun because it also sounds like l'amour, uh, which is love. Um, and and uh, death is also a euphemism for orgasm in French. Yes, le petit mort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So there's so there's a lot of sex and gender swirling around death. And so I I wanted to I was like, what if death uses every pronoun. And so Cyrano is just going to cycle through every pronoun that I can think of until I run out of text. Um, so for me, that was like the only place where I really messed with pronouns in the play. And I mean, I think everybody can identify with like loving someone and taking what you can get and then realizing later that you could, you, they were, they were right there with you all along. And yeah. And the roadblocks we put in our own way. Yeah, the whole that person is out of my league thing. Like, there are no leagues, my guy. There's no leagues. There's no leagues. We're all winners. 
<laughs> we are all winners. And there's enough. There's enough. Like truly, I know. Like we, I make fun of it. Yes, we're all winners. We all get a like a participation trophy, but like they're really. If you can't get a participation trophy in just like existing, then right. there's no competition. There's no competition. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's exactly no, there's right. no, there's, it's, it's what you decide it's going to be. And if you decide it's a game, then you've lost to me. It sounds like you've been thinking about this story for a while and, and pondering it for a while and exploring it for a while. Um, how, how did you collaborate with your director? Um, yes. Uh, so Lana and I have been friends since um, undergrad. We both went to UC Irvine, which is where I encountered Cyrano for the first time. Um, I was like a poet and like a bunch of little courtiers in it. And I just was so, it was like. I thought, I thought you were describing yourself at UC Irvine. I thought you were like, at that time in my life, I was a poet. Oh no. Also that. Like, I, I was like, great. Amazing. Love it. <laughs> I was a courtier. Say more. I dabbled, um, but um, and also you were in Cyrano and you were a poet. Cyrano, and that was fun. And um, and like Lana um, uh, has um, was a friend from that time. wasn't involved in the production, but um, we uh, always a huge um, classical theater nerd, and we connected on that. And um, we're also actually from like the same hometown. Like she grew up in the town where my mom went to high school. Like you know. Um, Oh really connected more in New York and um and like for years like I kid you not like the better part of a decade we've been trying to find something to collaborate on and it just never aligned you know um she and I got together and like we're you know drinking a bottle of wine like are we even artists anymore like I mean like we know we are but like we haven't done it in so long you know, for, you know, um, you know, we both had, uh, been like working right up until the, you know, shutdown and, um, and there was sort of this sense of like, do I even know how to do this? And like, would this even be something I would want to do? And is, uh, you know, zoom or an audio play really the format that we want to do um you know in theory we weren't even talking about Cyrano yet we were just sort of talking about like the medium right the play on the internet well what does art even mean currently what does art even mean but like also like can it be a live art form if you're viewing it through your screen yeah um and is there some energy of the theater that is lost uh, I've, I work a lot with um, speech and uh, voice and movement and um, I teach it and um, and there is there is something about well the way that we hear sound is it hits our bodies it doesn't hit our ear necessarily it's not like the sound like wiggles its way into your ear right like it actually just hits your whole body right which is why when you go to a concert and the bass drops and you feel it in your chest you're like yes <laughs> right like it's you're lit, you're feeling the vibration. And so I think there's something in about live theater that you are literally resonating with what the other person is saying that in a tinny laptop speaker just doesn't happen. Yeah. And so, and I also saw a lot of, I think we all saw a lot of productions that were not acknowledging the format, right? They were trying to do a play without acknowledging 
that all of this is direct address, like the right. entire play yeah. is inside, right? Normally, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm speaking, if I'm speaking, I'm not like always on the audience. I might be referring to this cup. I might be talking to my partner over here and I might be, lent. you know, there's not this. Yeah. So anyway, Lana and I are drunk um, on fairly nice wine um, and try, and I was like, yeah, I don't know, like, Standby Replaces asked me to do this play and I'm, I, I need help. I don't, I, I need, I need, I'm, I'm like, I have this concept, I guess, but like, I don't know how to shape it. And I need somebody who can sit outside of it and like, mm-hmm. tell me, cause I, you know, when you're playing Cyrano and you're also adapting it and you're retranslating it, it's like, I am looking at one tiny letter and I need somebody who can see the whole play. Right. Um, and so um, Lana um, very kindly agreed um, to uh, um, to direct it. And so as I was adapting, um, there was a lot of shaping of the script and going like, okay, like Lana would be like, okay, let's bring this theme out a little bit more and we're going to cut this section so that we can lift this up. Um, or like, okay, this moment has to be a big builder. Okay, we want this to be... We don't necessarily need to hear all of this text, so we're going to have the actor say it all at once at the same time. Um, so that was, you know, and then um, figuring out the sound design. Um, uh, figuring out the sound design was was also very big in trying to understand this. Um, and Lana had this brilliant idea for um, that this is a troop of actors in sort of a, you know, uh, telling this story. They've unfolded the wagon. They're telling this story. They're really excited about this story. But, um, you know, the uh, the sound design is going to be fairly simple. It's going to be whatever they have, right? Um, they're going to narrate sometimes action that's happening, um, you know, because they're it, like that person who sits next to you and is like, oh, wait, wait, wait. okay, now he's going to get up on the chair. Okay, watch, watch, he's going to get up on the chair. Um, you know, like that annoying uncle. It's like, wait, wait, oh my God, is he going to die? And you're like, I don't know, Uncle Don. I haven't seen it. Sorry, Uncle Don. I, love you. Um, uh, I don't know. You know, so those, the joy of seeing something with other human beings, right? Is is that is there's there's some energy. So I was so you know so um, so Lana also brought in this really great energy of um, not just this like theatrical troupe of actors that makes it feel more like you're in a theater, um, but also the um, the idea that like these are your friends watching the show with you um, that are hearing the play with you. Um, so, so Lana, Lana just really brought it to a whole nother level. Um, and that was, that it's just, it was honestly just such a joy to work with her. Um, I feel very, very lucky. Um, and she was very, um, and you know, uh, she, she also like, you know, was through, was, you know, bringing in actors for the casting process. And like, um, you know, we talked about what a fair and equitable casting process looks like. Um, you know, we didn't have auditions. We just reached out to actors directly. Um, but like that, you know, we're going to reach out and make sure that we give, um, that like, we're, we're not doing a classical play with an all white cast, you know, like I can acknowledge the intersection of my identities and like not, you know, center myself entirely, even though I'm playing Sierra now. It's refreshing to hear in a casting process. I mean, uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, I, you know, but I think that there is um, sort of a, I don't know, also box for a second, but I I do feel like there is a little bit of, um, 
within um, the white queer community, sort of this like, oh, well, we're oppressed. So like, we don't need to acknowledge the ways in which we might oppress, right. for example, uh, you know, black indigenous people of color who are also queer in our, um, in our community, right? Um, and um, I think there's something very important about acknowledging your positionality. It doesn't cancel out yeah. you know, whatever systems of oppression you're currently under. But I think, um, you know, everybody has privilege in some way and everybody has disadvantages in some way. Um, and we all rise collectively. Um, we will not, um, we will not survive if we are all like, oh, well, it's just about me and my cause here. And that's the cause that I'm fixated on. It's, I, I mean, uh, unless you were under a rock in this last year, the word is intersectional. Um, so. Especially yeah. in a community minded or, or uh, a group dependent industry like theater and storytelling, which in which you need other people for it to exist. And in which there's inherent, um, uh, there's inherent inequalities. Um, you know, I think that there is something that I've sort of been reckoning with as an educator in the last year is um, like I teach in a musical theater program and we teach actors um, not to speak up in the rehearsal process. Um, we teach them to be easy, not to be troubled. There are 5 million people in line behind you um, who want that job. And you're disposable. And you're disposable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what a message. How special. So healthy, not toxic at all. So healthy. And like, and you either get with the program or somebody else chooses it for you. And you don't get to, and then even in a like, okay, how do I be an anti-racist actor? Um, you know, there's lots of ways. And like, there are many other people who are much more educated on the subject who could speak about it. But like, the question of like, uh, you know, well, I don't get to choose what I say and I don't get to choose where I move. I only really get choice in the roles I accept or I turn down. And if I turn down that role, will it just go to somebody else who fits my demographic, right? Um, so there, there, there tends to feel like this sort of lack of control um, for actors and this, um, uh, you know, which is why I think you see so many actors like um, turn to like what I'm turning to, which is like self-produced work. Um, for an opportunity to, you know, uh, make your own voice known. But I think there is a way um, in which, uh, you know, um, actors have sort of been infantilized. Um, and uh, yeah, we are big babies a lot of the time. <laughs> and yes, we will eat all the food at your catered function. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, have you seen those canapes? They're delicious. Um, but... I won't, I won't sit here and go like, oh, well, we're utterly helpless in the face of oppression. Like, obviously, like if the March on Broadway has taught us anything, actors are a very big part in making- There's so it many of us. There's yeah. so many of us. And something that I found really interesting about the Panasonic mm -hmm. was that uh, all of a sudden we weren't in competition with each other anymore because there were no roles. So we were actually talking to each other and there was this, at least in my experience, I don't know if you've had a similar one, but there was this huge wave of like, wait a minute, you had this too? Okay, so this is a thing. Okay, so this can't happen anymore. Right. A mutual realization of the things that are no longer acceptable. Um, and I think it's because the element of competition was removed. Um, and yeah. unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, we've been taught to think of competitively like that like you said like there are people standing in line behind you who can take your job like that if you don't get with the program and 
things but like I that. It's about transparency. I think that, you know, the casting process, um, at least in commercial theater and the way that we know it now is so opaque. Um, and we don't get uh, really a lot of insight into why somebody, um, why a casting director went in the direction that they did. Um, and of course, like there's a lot of legalities tied up in that, um, you know, and you can't always share those things. But I think because none of us were in an active, or not many of us were in a, an active casting process, there was no like, oh, well, I signed that NDA. So like, I can't talk about this now or like, oh, like it's just not good form to speak about it. Or like, is this me being a problem? Is this me talking shit? Is this me being a complaining actor? And, and I think that also opened up a lot um, in terms of conversations about, oh, this does happen in the casting room. Also, I think another big part of it was we all had to get different jobs. Yeah. Like if we were lucky enough to get employed, we all had to go into different industries and then went, oh, you, you tell me when I didn't get the job? Oh, yeah. There's an the HR. That doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you apologize when a check was late? Like things that like, I think a lot of actors were realizing were. Um, oh, I only have to be at work for seven hours. Right. And like, and, and the oh. sort of like abusive, like there's sort of like this, uh, line of like, you know, uh, like actors equity will always talk about like, you know, this is a job. We are, this is a real job. This is a real industry. Right. But then on the flip side of that, there is also this sort of concept that like, oh, it's my dream to be an actor. And like, yeah. it's a privilege to be here. And like, and both of those things are true, mm -hmm. but I kind of feel like it's, whenever it comes to funding for the arts, it's always very convenient to fall into the dream category. And then when it's a real job, it's whenever, you know, negotiations are on the table. Right, but exactly. Like, it's it, like the, the dream thing is pulled out whenever um, there is a, a shitty workplace situation. Like that's something you that's would- weaponized. Accept. You would never accept, um, you know, uh, like if I were, um, you know, if it were my dream to, I don't know, be a lawyer and I was a lawyer and my mother died and I had a big case, we push off that day in court and I go to my mom's funeral. It's, it, it's not, there's sort of this like, you know, um, badge of honor of like how, how damage, how much damage can we do to ourselves and how yeah. much can we do for, you know, on a budget, you know. It's this um, like cultural fetishization of exhaustion that is, in, uh, I mean, throughout our entire culture, but like specifically in the arts, it's so weaponized because at least in my experience, actors are the first ones to be like, I'll do it for free. Yeah. Um, and I've been that actor and, you know, yeah. like you, you go work on a short film set and you're getting paid zilch and the, the grip is not doing it for free. The sound guy is not doing it for free. You know what I mean? Like there, and, and nobody would ask them to. A skilled gig, right? That's considered, whereas, and I think it also, it really comes down to like how our culture views emotions um, as, as some, you know, uh, that there's not um, technique or craft in knowing how to express that in a way that succinctly tells a story. But I also will say no shade to people that work for free. There are many great reasons to work I've for free. I've worked for free many times. I'm 
look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to apply for grants for this right now. Um, uh, but like, I, I will say that there's sort of this, um, the theater has a very weird relationship with capitalism that I don't see in a lot of other industries, even in film. Yeah. Even in film. Uh, Which is so weird because it doesn't posit itself like a capitalist force. It kind of, which I would, feel like would argue theater, theater veils itself as this like thing of the people. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, we're all just putting on a show and yet the, the, the flip side is this grim capitalist uh, flaming hellscape. Because that's something that's very convenient for producers to say to get people to work for. It's the dream thing, like you were saying. It's it's the weaponization of of this is this is all you could ever want. This is magical, the magic of theater. Magic of theater, of you know, a place where everyone is accepted, except not you. Maybe, no matter what your dream is, it shouldn't compromise your mental or physical health. No. And and sure, we're now discussing all the changes that need to be made in order to make this a safe environment and and a place that encourages mental wellness instead of uh, destroys it. Uh, but uh, it's a slow moving vehicle. And because uh, it comes down to dollars and cents, you know, everybody right. says, we see you, we hear you, we committed to these things. Right. And, um, and at the same time, there's, uh, you know, there's organizations I won't name, um, that still have yet to have said, you know, we're committing to working on anti-racism and have yet to like actually say anything concrete. Like there is no, um, like, I love that they've said it. Yeah. It's all well and good to say stuff. But if you don't have timelines and if you don't have budgets, you are, you are blowing smoke up my ass. What do you think, what do, what do you foresee for, for the future in terms of how this is all going? Is, are there things that you've learned about like uh, putting, putting on your own show and, and uh, taking control of, of, of the things you want to be doing in the last year? Yes. Um, I mean, so that I will say this is not the first thing I've self-produced, um, nor will it be the last, even though every time I swear it will be the last. Um, <laughs> but I... <laughs> um, but I, uh, I, I think, um, you know, uh, something that always really irked me about the theater world, at least in the United States is how far behind technologically it always felt compared to the world of film. Mm -hmm. Um, and how like they're, they're, you know, theaters are, um, just really not understanding, like there's this, you know, we were talking about the sort of like time and money poverty mindset that is in the theater. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's total lack of acknowledgement that there are a lot of free tools on the internet. If you would just stop saying, Oh, I don't know how to do that. Um, you know, like there, and I feel like this really forced a lot of people to um, learn new skills and learn how to use zoom and learn how to put something together remotely. Um, and uh, get better at Google Suite and all of these things that are seemingly not part of the creative process, but really can speed it up and make it cheaper um, or even automate some parts of it. Uh, but I, I think that um, I'm excited to see theater on the internet more. I mean, like it's it's been happening. Like, I mean, I like there's lots of incredible, like onstage blog is like, incredible like um let's hear it for the choice has been really bringing it um but like for a long time 
Um, the internet has sort of been this place where you really had to dig for those three production photos from the Broadway show. If you didn't live in New York, like that was how you would be like, wow, that's what the costumes looked like. Um, you know, um, and now there's more, con there's more theater content happening on the internet. I, what I really hope is that um, theaters continue um, to, even after um, we're at full capacity in theaters, continue to live stream things. Um, I think the theater has had um, a really ableist approach to things for a very long time, and it's been largely inaccessible, not just to disabled people, but to people who are geographically not in a major market. And there's been sure. this attitude for a very long time, and I think it's directly related to theater's relationship with technology, that, um, that uh, New York is where American theater happens mm -hmm. and everything else is the provinces, you know, with the exception of a couple of really high profile regional theater companies. I always find that even, even the most prominent, like non New York theaters only get that acknowledgement if like a movie star is doing one of the shows. Right, or they've gotten, you know, uh, you know a Tony <laughs> and like even then people in the actual town are like, what, who? Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's sort of this, like, um, you know, I think that, like, theater has for a long time been like, oh, well, we don't need people who don't get us. And we do. This is, um, you know, for all of my, like, ranting about capitalism and my little, you know, socialist queer heart, this is a capitalist enterprise. Like, even as a nonprofit, this is a capitalist enterprise. And if your audience is not able to make it to the theater, bring the theater to them. Like, yeah. like figure out a way to live stream and charge like half price for that. Um, you know, uh, there's, it, it, also in, it also means that, you know, you can have ticket equity um, and that more people can have access to things for longer and view them on demand because that's how our culture works. Yeah. I know it's like, oh, well, that's the newfangled way to do things. And, you know, theater is classic. And it's like, yes, that's how dinosaurs die. Right. And I want to see the theater die. I love the theater. I, I, I do. I love it so much. And that's why I rant about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because because I love it. Um, you only criticize the things that you you truly care about. If I didn't care about it, I wouldn't I wouldn't be talking about it. But I think exactly. that if you didn't think it it could be improved upon, then you wouldn't waste. And your I believe I deeply believe in theater's capacity for change. I believe that that is the only place where theater is alive. Um, and uh, and I think that if you wanna do another production of Arsenic and Old Lace, go ahead. Like, go ahead and- Great play. It. It's lots of fun. Great play. Sure. It's a great play, but, you know, consider the ways in which you're doing it. I mean, like, let's talk about, let's talk about ways in which we do things, right? And planning the, like, yeah. vaccine rollout. Great. Everybody gets a card, but nobody gets an ID number. So now we can't verify who got vaccinated and who didn't. And does this fit in anybody's wallet? I can't find my card. It was in my car no, and I ignored it. it. <laughs> Like, so it's like the whole, like the thing itself, yeah. we got the vaccination, we got what we needed, mm -hmm. but the way in which it rolled out did not serve and will not last long-term. And I feel like- It wasn't tomorrow-minded, exactly. It goes back to the scarcity mindset thing you were talking about. 
It's thinking about, oh God, how am I going to get this out here? And not, oh, how is it going to be received? How is it going to be used? Like something we're talking about in um, the Cyrano post process right now is how people will be listening to this. And like, and the mix needs to be accessible on a laptop or a, um, a phone speaker. Mm-hmm. If somebody doesn't have headphones, I still want them to be able to enjoy the piece um, because that shouldn't be a barrier to entry. Now, whether or not that's possible, let's find out. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, there is a whole lot of in the theater, you know, a rush. There's always a rush. And a panic. And a panic. And, and it's, um, you know, Twyla Tharp famously said, you know, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna misquote her here, but like, the, you know, the best thing I ever made was when I, or the worst thing I ever made was when I had unlimited time, unlimited money, and I could pick all my dancers, right? There were no edges to the canvas. I feel like sometimes there doesn't need to be a rush, but theater makers feel like we have to have a time edge on it. Otherwise we're flowing in space and we don't know what it is. Like the only sure thing I know about in the rehearsal process is that it's going to be three or four weeks long and then we're going to have a show whether we want to or not, or whether, you know, that actually happens, we're just going to rehearse and then the show will be there. And, and while yes, absolutely. The show always does arrive. Um, I wonder what it would be like if the process before that wasn't so rushed. I wonder what it would feel like if, um, you know, I I had the pleasure of briefly working in France um, right before the Panini. And and, uh, I was uh, in a uh, workshop um, with a bunch of other French actors and they all were um, like, yeah, I'm uh, just out of work right now. So I figured I'd like take a class and the state pays for it. Um, the state pays for you to get better at what you do. In the, now ask any, ask any French person what they think of their taxes. Another question entirely. Sure. Um, but they're like, what? Uh, like, I love that we're talking about the WPA right now again. Yeah. I love that we're talking about, um, you know, a federal theater project. I love that we're talking about, um, we're envisioning a world because, you know, all of these struggles, all of these intersectional struggles that we're talking about right now, everybody, I feel like the, the main problem that we're experiencing, and I, it's interesting that this producer, you know, went off in the way they did, very emotional very they're viewing it as an emotional problem as oh this marginalized community is hurt mm-hmm. not oh this marginalized community needs rights you know um it's not a question of making me feel better like i don't i don't need my employer to make me feel better i don't need my employer to be my family I don't need it. I want to do my job, get my check, go home. Mm-hmm. But what I do need is support to do my job well. Right. And I think that's what's getting lost in translation here. And so everybody's talking about, we see you, we hear you. And it's all, it's become a meme at this point. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I don't need you. Please don't perceive me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Please stop perceiving me. Start right. paying me. You don't need to see or hear me. You just have to pay me and give me the basic respect that you give other workers. And maybe uh, you could start giving all of us a little more. And like, you know, personally, just don't cast cis actors in trans roles. Um, and it then- seems so simple, doesn't it? And ironically, that they're in their own way because if they're really coming at this from this is a business and we need to make money, 
Mm-hmm. And yet they're, they're sticking. It's an almost, it's this like puritanical roots of America. I, yes. I, you know what I mean? This like it, common sense when it comes to making money gets shoved to the side as soon as traditional values get questioned. And yeah. so like they could be by making theater more accessible and less of an elitist, you know, traditional New York thing. And by, by making theater more inclusive, racially, gender wise, uh, able ability wise, um, they're, ex- they're casting a wider net. They're expanding their audience as well as their workforce. They're going to make more money, but they don't want to because it feels like it's taking something away. And it's, you know, it's just like the way that like Burberry burns last season's clothes, right? Like it's, yeah. um, you know, I, I mean, it's sort of like, uh, you know, um, I mean, two things I want to say about that, like the whole Scott Rudin thing, Right. Like, how did anybody think that that was an if like regardless of the emotional impact of it, how did anyone think that that was an efficient way to run a business that you are onboarding an employee every two weeks because you just fired another assistant that costs money? Yeah. What are you doing? And then the other thing I would say is like, I think that um, theater really has um, because it's, you know, uh, especially like a commercial theater has had like you know, so many big donors for such a long time, they haven't had to crowdfund the way the smaller, scrappier ones are. And if you've ever done crowdfunding, you know, I am not chasing the thousand dollar donor. I am chasing $1,001 donors. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the prices, like if you go on Today Ticks right now, because Today Ticks is, you know, selling tickets now that things are starting to pick back up again, seats in the orchestra, for a lot of places are hundreds of dollars because they are still chasing a big ticket. Right. Right. And that to me is more of a gamble than live streaming your show and selling $5 tickets or whatever, you, you know, 25 would probably be low for them. Um, you know, uh, in selling, selling those at a lower price and then having more engagement across the board. Yeah. You know, um, like, I don't, I, I don't know why, you know, especially people like, you know, Scott Rudin, who sit in both worlds of theater and film, don't see that as an opportunity rather than an obstacle. I don't know. And, and maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't been in those rooms. I'm not that, I'm not that decision maker. But to me, mm-hmm. that's a business opportunity to get more return on your investment. Why would you, why would you turn that down because of the magic of live theater? I, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I did. It reminds me of like when I was in seventh grade and uh, my mom got really mad about the reading list because it was all male protagonists and mostly male authors, but like all male protagonists. And so she, my mom was an English major and, and is a staunch feminist punk rock icon. Uh, but she, uh, she went to my English teacher and was like, why, why? How could it, how does this make any sense? And he was like, well, girls will read books about boys. Boys won't read books about girls, which is an insane thing to say because it's just not, it's only true if, if that's how they're taught, how they're taught. It's only true if those are the options, like this, this restrictive, like puritanical mindset of like, this is how things are. This is how they've always been. This is how they will always be is 
is so hindering to common sense and booming business. Right, right. And this, and this sort of like, you know, I, I was, um, uh, I, I quit acting for uh, a short period of time, like a couple of years and, um, and worked at a startup as a marketer, um, which was like where I learned a lot of terms like return on investment. Um, but it, it, it really opened my eyes to um, how one gains an audience and all the ways in which um, the theater sort of talks down to its audience sometimes um, and then doesn't deliver a product that people want to engage with and then goes, oh, well, we're an institution. So um, maybe you just don't get it. That's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah. Especially and in classical theater. Especially in classical theater. Especially in classical theater. Oh, you don't understand Shakespeare? You don't like Shakespeare? Which is so ironic because most of Shakespeare was written for the common folk, for the groundlings. Like, it, it, 90% of it is dick jokes um, and fart Depositing it as though it's something lofty and something that only the top tier can access is making, it means you're going to sell less tickets. But that's also a function <laughs> of white supremacy, right? Is to, yep. like, is to uh, you know, um, insist on the on self-importance. Yes. And uh, and you know, I think it's not that important. I don't think we're that important. I think well, that uh, what we do is um, beautiful and necessary and nourishes the world. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, only only if it's reaching people. Um, and. Uh, I don't think all art, uh, this is probably going to be a, a, a controversial say, I don't think all art nourishes. I don't think, you know, like, um, I'm not, you know, I'm, my roommate and I just watched um, the Bo Burnham inside. Um, oh gosh, I haven't watched it yet, but I've seen Twitter lose. I can't tell what everybody thinks because everybody's just like, oh my God. And I can't tell if that's good or bad. You don't want to know. You don't want to know. You don't want to have any opinions going in. Just watch okay. it. Just, just watch it. Okay. But, Truly, it is there. Like it, what I identified so deeply with so much of it is like, ah, yes. During this time of real struggle and pain, and people are dying. Um, you know, um, I know what I'll do. I'll tell people jokes. That's gonna. That's I'm gonna save the world with that. You know, I. I, you know, and I, I feel like part of the reason I love acting so much is because it's, it's not necessary. Um, you know, because it is, uh, you know, the theater is, um, is not necessary, um, but it's beautiful. Yeah. That's what, that's what makes it, you know, um, we need bread, but we also need roses. Right. And I, I, um, you know, uh, the great thing about acting is that if you mess up, no one's going to die. No one's going to go to jail. You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. I'm not curing cancer here. No, no, no. But um, you are maybe sharing an experience that someone else will see and go, oh my God, thank you for saying that. Yeah. You know, or, oh man, I've totally done that. And that is um, in, in an increasingly disconnected world and a more polarized world. Um, I think maybe possibly the only thing that's necessary mm. because none of no one else can do their jobs unless we're actually communicating. Um, 
uh, Theater Bay Area had a really amazing um, uh, op-ed right after 9-11. Um, and uh, they said, and I'm gonna misquote this, but um, no one saw this coming. And it was because they didn't have the imagination. Nobody in all of the think tanks in Washington had the imagination to think that somebody and the empathy to put yourself in someone else's shoes and imagine that you would be so desperate and so enamored with a um, mindset that you would commandeer a plane and run it into a building. And that is what we practice in the theater. We practice suspending our disbelief. We practice empathizing and pretending to be somebody else for a little bit. And that allows us then to go out into the world and consider how we are expressing and how we are relating to other people. So it's one of those things where you can't quantify it. So I can't say, here's my output. These are the sales I made this month. Yeah. In the theater. But I can see a shift in how people are interacting with each other. And that's, you know, qualifiable perhaps. Yeah. It's, and it, and it also kind of brings it back to Cyrano mm. in the idea of, of, being somebody else and exploring different identities and pretending and and the the extreme humanity in that and how one of the things that makes if theater isn't necessary it's at least inherent mm. like it's something that we've always done we've always told stories it's it's an intrinsic part of the human experience can't not we can't stop yeah. ourselves from doing it right um, you know, I love what you just said, because I do think that like Cyrano does have, maybe this is why I feel like Cyrano is a queer story, because there's a trying on of things mm -hmm. and there's not a, oh, I am this now, you know, um, something I've been seeing a lot um, that I'm so grateful for, you know, like I think at the beginning of my transition or before I even transitioned, I kind of thought like, oh, well, trans people, like once you've declared you're trans, you got to figure it out. Like you know what you want, what you like and how you, you like to present. Sure, and, neat and tidy. Right. Neat the way that people like other people to be. You should know in your gut, like, oh, this clothing feels good. This clothing feels bad. Or this presentation feels good. This presentation feel, feels bad. You'll just know. And there is a lot of doubt. And it was, and I, I'm so grateful, like listening to other trans people's stories about like, yeah, I didn't think I wanted it. And then I tried out my new name at a coffee shop I don't go to. And when they said it, like my heart flipped over, mm. you know, it, it, and then it wasn't like, a, okay, now that's my name forever. It was a, okay, I tried that. Now I'm going to try a little bit more. I'm going to, I'm not, you know, just in the way that Cyrano on the balcony scene tries on being a lover, he rehearses, he plays the part of loving Roxanne before he gets to. Um, there is this sort of, I don't have to commit to any presentation. I don't have to, I don't owe anybody an explanation of my transness. I don't owe anybody an explanation of who I love or how I love. Um, it helps to tell people sometimes because in speaking about it, you can articulate it and then you're like, oh, that's that's what it is. But um, I mean, the first time I bound my chest, which was relatively recently, um, I 
could barely speak the entire weekend. And obviously I'm a person who loves to talk a lot. Like I don't run out of things to say. And having, having my chest bound, I felt like I had stepped into a very bright room and there was a very large object this close to my face and I couldn't quite see what it was yet. And I really thought when I bound my chest, I knew immediately whether it was for me or it wasn't for me. Instead, it opened up more questions and all I could do was just sort of mutely experience my body and go, oh my God, do other people feel at home in their body? Is this what everybody else has been feeling their whole lives? And, and that wordlessness was very freaky for me because I am used to words. Words are primarily how I understand the world. I'm not, you know, like I'm not a painter, you know, I don't understand the world through color or shape. Um, you know, the way I understand the world is through language. So to initially just have an embodied experience, I was like, oh, oh, okay. And so what I was hoping to do with Cyrano, and who knows if this will come across or not, because it is an audio thing and we are just talking, is whether or not the embodiedness of it can still come across, whether or not that relation in space can come across. I don't know. We'll find out. But I do feel there were moments in the recording of it where I was, I felt like um, there was a sense of contact in a way that there hadn't been. Um, and I think that's what I miss about the theater right now. I think that's what I miss about collaborating live with people and what I'm so excited to get back to. Um, and I think uh, that, that, that contact and that space for imagination and for things to maybe not be literal. Um, you know, I really have to credit um, my sweet dear friend, Ben Holbrook, um, he created this beautiful, beautiful piece called Theater and Material, which I was lucky enough to participate in, um, that is basically a guided meditation um, into your own favorite theater space. And then you witness a play and then it ends. And I, you know, um, we recorded it. And like, obviously when you record it, you're not part of the entire thing. You don't see the finished product. And when I experienced the finished product for the first time, I cried pretty hard because I was like, that is the closest I felt to being in a theater. And it was, it was live streamed. So everybody was meditating at the same time. So even though you like, you know, it was on YouTube, you can't see anybody. It felt like a communal experience. And that contact and that unity is something that um, sort of transcends language. I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's beautiful and I want more of it. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have to, you don't have to have any exact words. That's, I think that's the crux of, of, of what you've been sharing. Uh, at least what I've gotten is about um, the space between the words and the, and that the fact that there's room in this world for things that we don't yet have words for. And uh, that there might never be words for that, that yeah. some things don't need to make sense. And I think this is why everyone raves about Gen Z. Mm -hmm. uh, like Gen Z doesn't need things to make sense. Like if you look at TikTok right now, that is Dada. Yeah, it's so Dada. <laughs> it is absurd. So is, yes. It is Dada. And, yeah. and, and because they are facing a world much like the Dada is faced, which was nothing makes any sense. I'm overloading. 
right? Yeah. There, there is, um, and I feel like that is a world in which trans people can exist without having to, uh, you know, be understood, Mm -hmm. um, you know, necessarily, um, the, there, there is a real freedom in saying it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be literal. It doesn't have to come together. You may never come together. I may never, I may never be chilling my gender. Like I, like I, I'm, I, for a minute was like, okay, I'm definitely trans mask and this is definitely happening. And then I will go on hormones and then I will have the surgeries and that is how it will happen because that is the path. That is the linear path Mm -hmm. and there is no linear path. And I think that's also, you know, not to spoil the end of Cyrano, but I think there is something really beautiful about um, uh, things maybe never being resolved, especially in a year when like, you know, so many of us have lost so many people um, in seemingly senseless ways, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, and then there's a sort of urge to make a narrative about it afterwards, you know, like. Yeah, they tried doing what they love or, you know, like, oh, like this is why they passed or, you know, sometimes people just die and it's not at a convenient point in their life where things were bookended. Um, The credits don't roll like, you know, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And I think that's an invitation rather than a uh, something to fear, because like Angela Davis said, you know, um, if we can imagine a world, I'm going to kind of butcher it, but a world without gender means, you know, a world without prisons. You know, we can imagine that world when we stop trying to um, create answers. I think, you know, there was a big question this summer about like, okay, well, what does defund the police actually mean? You know, like who will protect us? And it's like, I don't have all the answers. I just know this isn't working. Mm -hmm we are going to figure it out in the doing. And that has also been my experience of my transness is I am a very intellectual person. I love to like have it all thought out before I do something. But the real wake up moments have been in actions, in doing things, in, um, in pure experience. And that is, you know, what the theater is supposed to be. Yeah. And so why not, you know, allow that to be wider? Why not expand our concept of, of what experience is and not say, oh, well, it's only for the people that can afford to come to the theater and buy these tickets. It, it can be more. It doesn't have to be, a, you know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, well, you know, something will be lost in the translation. Find a way for it not to be. It's an invitation. All of these, all of these roadblocks are invitations. That's a great, that's a great way to reframe it. All of these roadblocks are invitations. Yeah. They're, they're almost the solution to their own problem. You know, any improv student will tell you to follow the fear. Whatever you're afraid of, that's what the scene's got to be about now. You know, if people would just take a moment and notice when they're getting defensive and freaked out, myself included, because let me tell you, I have not, I am, I am anti-racist. I still do a lot of racist shit and I'm working on it. Sure, all of us do. We're human beings. All of us. But I, but I think, um, 
that when you have that, when you notice that fear voice coming up, right? And I think producers are always saying like, oh, well, we can't, we couldn't do the X, Y, Z. It's like, okay, so why not? What is the fear? Theater is a world of make-believe that is deeply rooted in imagination and creativity. So let's just pretend that there is a solution to this. Yeah. <laughs> or like, okay, so this is where we want to be. Let's work our way backwards. Yes, and our way into it. There's, yeah, there's, um, you know, and of course, you know, you'll get the pushback of, oh, it's not that simple. Dollars and cents, dollars and cents. And it's like, okay, so how do we get those dollars and cents? Because lots of other industries, mm -hmm. like the farming industry, um, of which, of like, I, you know, I belong to a family farm, you know, um, and, uh, you know, the farming industry got more handouts, you know, um, they got more, more uh, um, money from the government, and they don't have the same output financially, like it's much less. And I was very surprised to learn this. I really didn't think this, but the entertainment sector makes more money for the United States than farming, which- How can that be true? How can that be true? Because we import a lot of our crops now. Of course. Um, yeah. But we have really um, created an identity around settlers that move westward and farm the land. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of, oh, well, we have to appeal and we have to make sure that those people are happy. Um, but if you look at the actual dollars and cents of it, um, it's not quite the same. Um, that is really fascinating. I'm gonna read more about that. Get me the WPA, baby. Get me a federal theater <laughs> project. Let me tell you, we will do wonders. Biden well, I'm, I'm sorry, but like, if you can understand Waiting for Godot enough to, to produce it, then, then there's room for anything. Well, it, I mean, also like, you know, the skills we all have now, like, I mean, I feel like, you know, going back to what you were asking earlier about like how the world will change. I mean, like all of us have learned now how to produce our own stuff. We've also learned how to like maybe work a desk job. Um, and these are all skills that like you can't unlearn and you're not going to go back and like, you're not going to go back to the way things were before. We just can't because we know things can run better now. Yeah. Right. It can be easier. And we're all talking to each other. Yeah. And there's no badge of honor in it being hard no. for no reason. You know, that it doesn't need to be difficult. Things are difficult enough. Yeah. That whole, what if it were easy thing? What if it were easy? Were easy. Excellent question. What if yeah. I moved through this with ease? Yeah. I heard that uh, Jen Waldman said that. I, I think she was quoting somebody, but I'm not sure. But I, I heard it from her. But it, it's such an unlocker for so many things. But like for theater too. What if? What if? What if it were easy? What if we could just do this? Yeah, I actually I think I first encountered it in um, the 17 questions that. Um, mm. uh, um, it, it's in tools. Um, tools for Titans. Um, a very bro-y book by Tim Ferriss that's currently holding up my laptop. Um, oh my God, I was just listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast. Yeah, um, his 17 questions. Um, I highly recommend uh, Tools for Titans. Um, it's uh, basically takes all of his podcasts and like an hour long podcast and distills it into like two, three pages of bullet okay. points. Perfect. It's incredible wisdom. Sometimes I just like scan through it and flip it and open up to like whatever I need to motivate me for that day. But his 17 questions are really incredible. And one of them is, what if this were easy? Um, 
what it yeah what would it look like if it were easy and i don't think that's a question theater makers ask themselves often. yeah i don't think so either to be painful and hard well because upholding the rigidity of the structure means upholding the supremacy mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Ugh, it's just grosser the more you peel away at it. But but hopefully with, with creators making art the way that they want to make art and the telling stories the way that they're interested in seeing stories told and, and, and putting themselves in roles that they want to play regardless of what's traditional, hopefully that will break the mold. And there's so many of us, there's so, you know, there, there's, you're out there, breaking the mold and and there's there's a lot of artists pushing back and hopefully we will be a tidal wave of creativity it looks really cool on the outside right but like i gotta say uh um breaking the mold is just another term for taking a risk yeah right? and i don't know if it's gonna happen like we're recording this right now while i'm in post on sierra now I don't know if this is going to be good or not yet. I experimented with a bunch of new things in terms of the rehearsal process time, in terms of like how I interact. I did a bunch of roles like in terms of writing and adapting and all the stuff that I've never done before. I don't know if this is going to be any good. Like, I don't know if this is going to, like, I don't know if maybe five people will see it, right? Uh, it might be terrible, but I'm not really that upset about it because I know I tried and I was doing something new and it's all information for, okay, what's the next thing? You know, like mm -hmm. it's, it's when you quit that you failed. I don't think you can, I don't, you know, even, even if nobody ever sees Cyrano or if everybody listens to Cyrano and actively hates it and I become like, you know, PewDiePie, like, you know, like even then. I, I feel like you have to do some specific things to become like PewDiePie. And I, I, yeah, we've only been chatting for a short while, but I have a feeling that, I have a feeling it's not going to go in that direction. I mean, like, who knows? <laughs> the internet's crazy. Um, but I, I think that there is, you know, like, uh, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about, you know, being in the ring. The arena. Yes. Keep repeating to myself lately. You know, I'm like listening back to a take of mine and going, oh, look, I'm in the ring. 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 No one in Twitter is in the ring. I'm in the ring. Like, yeah. you know, and, and I think that's all you can do. I think that's all you can do. Cool. And that's, the, the, I, you know, like, I, I think I, I used to, you know, sit in my corner, not risking and um and look at other people and go like oh you're so inspiring and then see people cringe when i call them inspiring be like what like you are you're inspiring yeah. and now now i'm you know going like oh yeah because like in the moment nothing feels inspiring you're sweating you smell bad you mm -hmm. haven't seen your partner in days you think that this might be the end of everything and you're going to crawl in a hole and like like um there's this meme of, uh, you know, Coco, the um, gorilla who uh, knows sign language. Yep. They asked her what um, she thinks happens after death. And she signed back comfortable whole bye. And that's what I think of every time I'm like in the middle of a project where I'm like, this is terrible. I'm going to comfortable whole bye. Whole bye. Comfortable whole bye. <laughs> um, I'm going into my comfortable whole goodbye forever. <laughs> um, you know, and then, um, and then it comes out and it's like not terrible. Maybe it's not my favorite thing, but 
I did it because of course, by the time you finish something, you've learned enough that you're like, I know that's bad. Um, you know, it's the, it's the horrible cycle of being that by the time you finish right. something, you've gotten better. And so you look yeah. back and like, no, but, but then you've made something and then it exists something. and it didn't exist before. And then it's also just not about like, it's the same thing for auditioning. Like it can't be about getting the job. It has to be about getting better at your craft. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if I went in there and my goal was to make sure that I really hit the center of that note and I didn't go flat like I always do, great, I did my job today, I get a reward. Um, it's not about, you know, um, whether or not this project is the one that makes or breaks me, it's that I got a little bit better than I was before. Mm. And um, if anything else happens beyond that, icing on the cake, awesome. But all, all, all I can do is, um, you know, be in the ring, get a little bit better at taking a hit and, um, and then being really, really nice to myself afterwards forever and ever until I feel brave enough to do it again. And hopefully that time gets shorter and shorter and shorter every time. That's what Jerry Seinfeld said on Tim Fleiss's podcast about like, yeah, he said, uh, about writing specifically, he was like, uh, his like three rules are uh, only do it for like an hour a day because it's a huge thing to do. And it's insane to be like, I'm going to do this all day. No, you're not. Just no, you're do not. It for an hour and then you are done. And then uh, reward yourself adequately, which is like, you just did a crazy big thing and uh, it was risky. Even if nobody's seen it yet, still high risk. So like get yourself a delicious cookie or like go take a nice bath, like do a tangible reward. Yes. And then the third one was, if you have an idea for, for something new that you're starting to work on, don't tell anybody about it right away. Yeah. That was a game changer for me. I was like, oh my God. I Amazing. know. I know. And it, it feels like a game changer for a lot of people in our generation because it's like, what, you're not going to immediately make a post about it? Like, yeah, what? I, we have to announce everything as soon as it happens. We got to hype it. How are we going to get funding if we don't hype it? You right. know, it's like, no, maybe just don't. Without giving it any time to gestate. Again, being right. like time scarcity mindset. Um, right. Well, and that's the, you know, I think, um, you know, the reward thing ties back into, um, you know, Julia Cameron and the artist's way and like the deal that you make with yourself, which is, okay, universe, muse, whatever, whatever, you know, you ha are having a conversation with when you create, right? You always have that like, sort of it's sort of me but then when you're in the flow like it feels like it's coming through you yeah. okay whatever that is universe whatever you take care of the quality I'll take care of the quantity mm. right so I'm not going to place judgment on whether or not what I just did was good whether or not I really you know like killed it in that audition or whatever if I made another mistake whatever did I do the thing I said I was gonna do okay good next because you don't have you know and this is something i had when i was at the startup i had a boss who would give me feedback cheer me on when i was feeling you know not great about what i was doing a concept we have to do that for ourselves you know we we always have this talk about like oh i'm the actor ceo you know like i'm the legal branch and the hr branch yeah. and all these things but it's also like you're also like your own support team and like you don't have somebody to gossip with at the water cooler when you just like are overwhelmed by work for a second and you need a moment. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I mean the just just acknowledging that this is a game of quantity 
and letting things be bad. Because when you let things be bad, then they turn out sometimes kind of good. Yeah. I I've developed a whole new appreciation for like bad stuff, bad creations, because even if they're, even if they're garbage, you made a thing and then, then you feel more confident and knowledgeable about making an, another bigger thing and, and so on and so forth. It's, it, you have to make bad shit in order to make good shit in my experience. Right. Yeah. And that's like the pain of like, of being an artist, right? Because right. you have, you're an artist because you have taste yeah. and you see things that you like. And then it's the, um, it's like that TikTok sound on, um, you know, that's like uh, the beginning of September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. And uh-huh. then the shitty flute in the halfway point. Yep. You know what I'm talking about? I, I know exactly. I'm on TikTok far too much. I know exactly what you're talking about. We'll, we'll key that in later so everyone knows. It's, what's not, it's not my favorite shitty flute sound. My favorite one is the one where it's the Home Alone theme song. Oh, do, 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 do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. But, but the, but the earth, wind and fire one is very good. And that is a great, a great. Same concept. It's sort of like, it's what I love about TikTok is it's sort of like, yes, look at this terrible thing. Look at it. Yeah. Terrible. I made a thing in, in five minutes on a phone. Is it good? No, but I made it. I made it. Here is thing. It's like a cat bringing home a bird. I I got, I got you this thing. Yeah. yeah. Look, I made a hat. It doesn't have to be good. You just have to keep making. Yeah. So, so in the spirit of keeping making things, you are, uh, you're in post for Cyrano. When, when is that dropping? That is dropping in five days, baby. Ninth, my mother's birthday. Oh, um, exciting. Happy birthday, mom. I happy made birthday, mom. Thing. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so that's that's um, that's what I have right now, honestly. Like, it's a big I'm, thing. It's a, it's a. I mean, like, it's in terms of hours. Yes, I think. Um, you know, I have lots of other things cooking that I, I'm not going to talk about, like we just said. But like, um, but I think um, what's most exciting to me right now is, um, you know, the. Uh, that this is a moment when, I mean, honestly, the project, you want to know what my new project is, is, is figuring out how to be me in an audition room. Um, I, I didn't, I like really started using different pronouns, like right before the pandemic happened, like really February, 2020 was when I started doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, so I've never, been in an audition room in the way that I currently present. And, uh, and there are so many problems inherent with the casting process in regards to type and the way you kind of have to flatten yourself as a person to be a product that you present. And is that something I can still bring to the table? I think I can. I think it's just an interesting. So I feel like the, the project right now is, um, is relearning in general how to be in the world now that um now that uh things are i don't want to say returning to normal or coming back i feel like that maybe is is wrong to say but that there is a that like i'm 
I'm no, I don't want to go back to the way I was. I don't think I can go back. My Actually, my heart just started beating a little bit faster thinking about that. I'm curious and I'm excited to try things I've never tried before, be in spaces I've never been before, and just leave the house. That's the biggest project, I think for me right now is leaving the house and being a person. I feel like everybody's in such a rush to like have a gig, be doing a thing. Like let's get back on our New York hustle. And like, <sighs> yes, absolutely. It's like a Pavlovian like response. Right. And it's also a trauma response, right? It I want to be busy so I don't have to think about what the fuck just happened. Right. Right. And also I have to look busy quickly to my peers so that nobody thinks I'm straggling behind. Right. Exactly. And, um, you know, uh, another thing I love about the French, there's so much to love about the French, but um, I never once was asked what I do at a party. Nobody asked me what I did. That's such an American thing. It's, yeah. it's a rude question to ask in France. Um, right. it's, it's considered overly simplified because then, because it's always a question of class, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's always a question of like, okay, where is your position in the world and where do I put you? And like, what box am I gonna put you in? And I just, I am going to continue to work is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to continue to work. There you go. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a much healthier and that, that just sounds like I, it's so good to be going just in a direction instead of like doing something prescribed or rigid. It's just, um, especially right now when we just have no concept of what the future is going to be. And we don't know if we're moving out of this panna, what haven't I said? You, uh, panacea? That's a good one. Or Pangea. Pangea. Pangea is lovely. We're moving out of this Pangea, but we might not be. We might be moving into another phase of it. We're moving out of the way things used to be, but we might not be. We might be moving directly back into them and having to deal with, with, what that will look like and yeah <laughs> or worse so yeah more power to you just keep moving forward and doing what you're doing because clearly you're doing awesome things because Cyrano is going to be fantastic and you're a really interesting cool person and I can't wait to hear it Thank I'm so psyched I can't wait to hear it I love the story and I this is I, I'm already so excited by the take and by um how it sounds like the process was super excited to hear it Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank, thanks for talking to me today. No, it was truly a pleasure. I had so such a fun. Great. It was really nice to meet you. So great to meet you too, Alexander. And one day when the, when the pericarditis is yeah. over, mm -hmm. uh, we can grab a beverage in New York and we can discuss uh, the ruins of theatrical capitalism in person. Oh, awesome. We can be so fun. On let's let's just pour pour one out right on the ashes. Of the <laughs> I can't wait. And yes, exactly. It'll be a way grow in its place. <laughs> Cyrano de Bergerac comes out June 9th and uh, you can find it on standby for places. Is there anything else you want to draw attention to? Anything else you want to plug? Uh, yes. Um, for the Gorals is, um, currently doing a massive fundraiser during the month of pride. Um, I'm not associated with them. I, I just love them and love their work. So if you can, um, if you, uh, enjoyed this interview, if you enjoy, uh, Cyrano, um, and you would like to throw coins, please throw it in for the Gorals' direction that goes directly to, um, uh, um, trans, uh, women of color,
um, and uh, their medical expenses and housing. Um, so please, please, please give them all of your money. Um, we would not have pride without black trans women. So please, okay. please honor, honor them, um, especially while we have them. You heard the artist, give money, give it all. And also listen to Standby for Places, those two things, <laughs> do them now. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Nailed it. <laughs>